Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today is episode 30. Our guest today is Kay Simith, and she is going to talk about EMDR. I think when most people who are struggling with addiction and they get into treatment or they get into therapy, at some point they're going to hear about EMDR or be advised to maybe look into getting EMDR. So Kay is going to talk about what EMDR is and how it can help people deal with underlying traumas. It's a great episode and I know you guys will enjoy it quick note, I want to thank everybody who has come to the blog and left comments. I really appreciate hearing from you guys, hearing your questions and your comments. It really makes me uh, know that people are listening and, and enjoying this podcast. So thanks so much for everybody who has taken the time to do that. I really do appreciate it. So with that, let's begin this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 30, and my guest today is Kay Simith. And she is going to talk about something that we hear a lot about in addiction treatment, and that is EMDR. Kay, you want to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, great. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks for having me. I am a marriage family therapist in La Cunada, California, and I'm EMDR certified, and I'm an EMDR approved consultant. So I have a counseling group in La Cunada, same as the counseling group where we are all EMDR trained and uh, we've been there for quite a while. Oh, awesome. So I'm going to ask you kind of like right off the bat, a lot of people when they go into treatment or a lot of treatment agencies, they talk about EMDR or clients are encouraged to do EMDR. And a lot of questions I get from clients is they they're, they're like, EMDR, what in the what in the world is that? 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good question. It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which I remember hearing once Francine Shapiro, who is a developer of EMDR, once said she wished she hadn't had named it that after, uh, after she had, but the name had stuck. Because basically, it's, you're using bilateral stimulation. And the bilateral stimulation could be eye movement, also could be tapping, or it could be sounds, auditory sounds. So basically, the eye movement part is just talking about the bilateral piece. Okay, so what is, what is bilateral? What does that mean? Yeah, so basically, we use what we call bilateral stimulation. It might be eye movements, your eyes are going back and forth. It might be the tapping, alternately tapping on your knees or holding little pulsers that vibrate back and forth or just sounds that are going back and forth because the understanding is that when you activate both sides of the body, you activate both sides of the brain. So that's one part of it is the bilateral stimulation. But another part is you're then also focused on the topic at hand, the memory that you've chosen. And so that is going to be, you're going to have this dual attention process going on. And so when we're talking about EMDR, we're talking about the bilateral stimulation that incorporates this sort of dual attention process that helps us to process through. It's very different than just talk therapy where you're more in the prefrontal cortex. You're actually getting into the amygdala. You're getting into where the, where the trauma, where the upset memories are stored. And so you activate them and then you can process them through. Okay. Okay. So what about like if a client's coming in, I guess what I'm asking is who is this for? Like who would this help? Especially like when we're looking at at addiction and we're and we're looking from someone who's maybe in recovery, who is EMDR going to help, and why would they want to do that? Yes, well, so when in my group practice, for example, we say that we treat trauma, all trauma, big and small, and trauma often manifests itself in a variety of ways, not just in what we commonly know post traumatic stress disorder, but in anxiety, depression, and addictions. And so we use the word trauma processing loosely in EMDR speak. And it's basically anything that results in maladaptive behavior. And EMDR is very well suited for any sort of trauma. So it really, I, the applications I've seen, even though it was originally used for PTSD, we use it across the board. I use it with 98% of my clients. And I only say 98% because I don't want anyone to ever feel forced, but really everyone wants to use it when they see how effective and efficient it is. I like to think I was a good therapist before I got trained 11 years ago, but I just saw such a big before and after in my practice with clients really making ground much more quickly and then the changes would stick. And so that was super exciting. And so that's when I got more into it. Yeah. Could you kind of give um, like a generalized example of of someone or I know you, you can't say a particular client, but just a generalized example of how someone might present and how EMDR would help with that? Yeah, absolutely. So the great thing is we can start anywhere. We can start with something from the past. We can start with just a present day problem or we can look at a few something that's happening in the future and deal with that. And so let's say you have someone come into your, like have someone come into my office and they have a lot of anger issues and they're blowing up at work. And obviously that's not going to work out very well. So they come in and we'll, obviously we're just starting with the present. And so we go through the eight phase process that EMDR is. And as we go through it, we are looking at 
anything that might be an old trigger. And so as we're doing the processing, realizing that when he gets angry, it's because he feels bullied. And so as we go back and look, there's a memory of being bullied on the playground when he was eight. And in that moment in the present, that eight-year-old memory of being bullied gets activated and his belief about himself might be something along the lines of, I'm not safe. And in that moment when he feels unsafe, then he just starts coming out swinging just like maybe he did when he was eight years old. And so as we process that old memory with the bilateral stimulation, so we're holding the memory, we're adding the bilateral stimulation, uh, through that process, the emotional weight is taken out of that memory. And so in the present, when someone is acting maybe aggressively or bullyingly toward them, they don't have that same response and they don't act as if anymore. So it kind of allows them to, like this memory or this, it's kind of like a, a body memory when it gets triggered by a similar experience. Usually people have trauma, they kind of go off onto that experience and this kind of helps them, I guess, reprogram it or, or change it or shift it or... Yeah, so one another example that I like to use, I heard this from somewhere, I wish I could give credit to where I got it, but if you think of the brain as a glass of, let's say, ice water. And these different traumas that happen in our life, both big and small, if you think of them as ice cubes, right? And the memory is stored in its own neural network, in its own little ice cube. And so when an event happens that we clank into that ice cube and we don't have access to all of our rational brain. In fact, we know from Bessel van der Kolk's work that the, the prefrontal cortex goes offline when we're, our amygdala is activated and we don't have access to that thinking part of our brain. And so when we're doing the bilateral stimulation, it's like we're melting that ice cube. So when we're done with the memory, it, that obviously that event still happened. It's not like we don't have any feelings about it, but we have access to all of our brain, to all of the glass, to all of the water that is in the glass. So it doesn't become as, as powerful, as, as hard as that ice cube. Exactly, and you can access all of your brain to deal with the situation at hand. You can access your prefrontal cortex and, and your rational brain and all of your brain, not just, get, not just in the moment like you're in the ice cube back when you're eight years old in that memory. So a client may, who's coming in, I mean, what I see when, I, when I'm working with people who are struggling with addiction, there's a lot of times that you're, a lot of these, these past experiences are kind of coming up and the substance or the behavior helps them kind of deal with it or cope with it and not feel it. But what you're doing is is allowing that to be there without that uh, added intensity, it sounds like. Exactly. So once you take out the take out the emotional experience of the memory, then it's just an event that happened that informs your life, but it doesn't have the emotional weight toward it. And so when you're dealing with someone in addiction, once you clear out the trauma, then you can deal with the current urges or then you can deal with the uh, current feeling state. But, but you really need to clear out that trauma that is informing, that sort of informed the addiction that, that started it in the first place. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Right, because a lot of times when we're, like you said earlier, our brain goes offline. And what I've seen with clients, when that kind of gets sparked, that trauma kind of gets brought to the surface in the present, they start making choices that um, aren't really functional in that moment, gets them into more trouble, gets them, they don't make great decisions when they're in that state. And so... This kind of helps them work through that state. Exactly, yeah. To, to get to that state, I guess, to get to that state of calm or calm, calmerness. I don't know if that's a word, but... Yeah, calmerness, that's good. It is now. <laughs> it is now, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so then in the end, you know, with my example of the eight-year-old boy that was bullied on the playground, so now he's dealing with a situation at work and something happens and he, like I said, he feels bullied, then he just can deal with the situation of like, look, that's not appropriate and can set some good boundaries, but he's not triggered and activated and needing to go hide in his old, either old addictions or either hiding in old behaviors. They're, they're just not there, right? They're just not, they're unnecessary. It just doesn't, is it isn't as present. So how long does this take when someone comes in and starts to do this work? How long does it take for them to kind of work through these memories? So that is, of course, a complicated question and it, it's going to depend So we like to say, let's say we have a single incident trauma. Someone's in a car accident last week and they come in and and it's just been a week since that happened. That is going to clear out, you know, in a session or so, which I've had. And because somebody has healthy attachment issues, a healthy background, and this event happens, they're going to move through it quickly. However, if you have someone that comes in and has an a long trauma history might be big T trauma, but it might be small T trauma. You know, attachment trauma is a series of small T traumas throughout their life. That is going to take longer. And I'm always pretty upfront with my clients about that. However, the good thing is you see change along the way. And so someone will come in and go, look, I'm, I don't want to sit here forever. And I say, great, let's move you along as far as we can in the amount of time that you're going to be here. And then you can decide whether you're in a good enough spot or whether you want to take a break and and come back later or or just be done. So it's not like a black and white where you either do the work or you don't. You can do it in fits and starts. You can do it all at once. Or again, if it's if you don't, if you have more recent trauma, not as extended, it's just going to move pretty quickly. Right. So that earlier trauma, which I see a lot when in dealing with addiction, you see a lot of tend to be. You, you see a lot of early childhood trauma, attachment trauma, where there's either neglect or abuse. And it seems that those traumas are kind of like maybe a little deeper rooted in the brain or they've been living in that trauma for a big chunk of their life. So it's going to take time for them to process through that. Yes, that is that is definitely the one that takes longer. But again, I like to say we take it off in layers and so you see progress along the way. Uh, people will come back and they'll say, wow, I didn't blow up at my kids this week. I, I, I can't believe that. That was, you know, we've only met twice. And, you know, even though there, there's a long trauma history there, they're just seeing the effects quickly. And so that's exciting too. Even though you know there's going to be a lot of work for that person in the long run, they're just seeing the quick effects along the way. And that's exciting. Yeah, that's really exciting. I've seen that in my own work at uh, our agency. We have several therapists that use EMDR, and a lot of times they're coming in for substance abuse or, or behavior addictions, and we're containing that. And then the trauma starts to kind of appear. The trauma that they've been hiding, 
I don't want to, I don't want to say hiding, maybe hiding's not the word, but coping with, with all of these behaviors start to kind of come to the forefront. And usually at that point, that's where we start to get them into EMDR to kind of start to process that. And, um, they do start to see it's it's pretty amazing to watch as they kind of they at first they don't see anything and then all of a sudden they kind of they start to notice it i don't know if that right you know, they start to go wow i just didn't respond the same way yeah yeah and then they feel so encouraged because they they realize oh this i'm not stuck in these old patterns and behaviors i don't have to act this way in fact it's one of the things i tell people all the time you know they'll someone at a party will come up and you know start going on about something and I'll just look at them and say, you know, you don't have to live this way. You can make changes and you're not stuck in a forever place. And they're sometimes pretty surprised about the changes that can actually happen. So, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking because we have a lot of clients that come in and they have, there's a lot of sometimes physical abuse. So a lot of them come in with a lot of um, rage and anger. And a lot of times we've gotten in a lot of trouble because They've just, they lose their temper so fast. And then, and like you said, they're not even in control anymore. And then when they come back, they go, I I don't know what happened. I don't know what I did. And, and I don't know why I lost my temper so, so much. I just, I just flew off the handle and then they do EMDR for, for a little while. And then, yeah, they come in and they're like, they just, they're not flying off the hand. They're they're It's not like they're, like you said, it's not like they're, um, They still may be angry. They're just not, it's just not as intense. Right. Yeah. So one thing that's happening, a pretty critical piece of the EMDR process. So not only are we thinking in past, present, future and thinking of the eight phases as we're going through process with our clients, um, but also we're always looking at what the negative belief and the positive belief, what we always have a goal, where are we headed? So the negative cognitions is the real term. I call them negative beliefs. So in that moment, when this client gets angry, their belief about themselves that flashes is not even a conscious thought. It's I'm not safe or something or I'm bad or whatever it is. And so in that moment, that's when that memory is activated, that negative belief is just shows up so strongly. And so as we're doing the processing, we're always shifting as we're taking the emotional weight out of it. It's because that negative cognition, that negative belief is shifting to the positive. If it's I'm not safe, it becomes I'm safe now. Or if it's often it's an I'm bad, people go to a shame place. It becomes I'm good or I'm I'm okay. And so they don't even in that moment though of activation, that that negative belief just slips in and, and just kind of takes over. And then their activation level goes out the roof. So it so part of it is as you're shifting that belief from uh, the negative to the positive that's when people really start seeing the changes. And that's when that ice cube is melting, right? Right, and they, and they really start to kind of begin to feel that difference and, and experience it. What about, can you, this is, because I, I think like these kind of experiential therapies are so hard to describe in words, mm-hmm. um, but is there any way that you could kind of share what a, what a session might look like to someone who would come into your office and and how would you even start them off on this journey? Right. So the first three phases, I always tell my clients when they come in, they're going to just look like normal talk therapy. You're not going to realize that it's technically EMDR because we're doing a, the client history, the treatment planning, and we're doing some preparation and assessment. And that looks similar. That can last from 
a half a session, depending on if the person's done a lot of therapy and that might last weeks, depending on the sort of what's going on in the client's life. And so that would be the first part is doing the client history, treatment planning, the preparation. And the preparation phase is some things that we do because EMDR processing can be very intense and it can move so quickly. We really need to spend a lot of time making sure the client has resources because I always tell my clients, look, when you walk out of this office, you need to be able to go back to work or you need to be able to live your life well. And so we need to make sure we have all these resources in place. So I always do a container exercise, which is, I believe, borrowed from hypnosis, where at the end of the session, we imagine putting everything back in a container and locking it up tightly so that it's not coming out during the week, or we do peaceful place or other, other resources that are in really solidly in place. Again, because once we get to the, the phase four, the desensitization phase and the installation phase, things can really get intense and move quickly. And we're always, as therapists, always very mindful of keeping people in their window of tolerance so that they don't get flooded and it doesn't be, you never want it to become too much. So you're always keeping one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. So once we get through these first three phases, we get to the desensitization phase. And that's what people typically think of as EMDR, because that's where that bilateral process is. And so I might hand people little buzzies that I have, or I might turn on my light bar, which has lights going back and forth. Or I might just tap on someone's knees, depending on uh, what the client prefers. And, um, And in that phase, that's where we would have them hold the memory. So in the case of the earlier one, the guy that was angry, I would have him go back to being that eight-year-old boy being bullied on the playground, have him hold the buzzies, have him notice his body sensations, notice his feelings and his emotion, and just notice. You don't really, you don't want to lead the client. You want the client to just notice all of those things. And you're holding all these things in your mind which sort of gets you out of your own way because you can't think. And it's when we try to think and stay in our prefrontal cortex that we don't really get to the trauma. And so they're holding the memory, they're noticing their body sensations, they're noticing the feelings. And that's when the, starts, the things start to shift of, oh, wait, that happened when I was eight. Oh, wait, I'm not there. Oh, wait, I have all these resources now. Wait, that, that happened a long time ago. It, it feels so distant. And that's what happens as the ice cube is melting and the emotional weight is getting taken out of it. So it becomes less and less uh, immediate. Yes, because that's a good way of putting it. Absolutely, it becomes less immediate and it just becomes a a memory. Oh yeah, that's, yeah, that guy. And yeah, you know, when I was in third grade, whatever, that guy was just a jerk. Anyway, so what what are we having for lunch today? And that's, that's the emotional weight left. And then there's some other pieces, you know, we install, we look at a future piece uh, you know, next time you imagine someone's coming in and being aggressive and bullying with you, how are you going to, you imagine that still with the bilateral stimulation, you do a body scan, noticing your body. So can you describe a little bit in a, in a little bit more detail, this bilateral stimulation? I know what it is. I know what EMDR is, but maybe some people that are listening, they don't, what, what does that look like? This bilateral stimulation? So all that it looks like is either uh, you're holding Buzzies that buzz alternately in your hands, or someone is tapping on your knees alternately, or you have had some, I sometimes use headphones with sounds, music going back and forth. So I let people choose the bilateral stimulation that feels best to them. And again, so all the bilateral stimulation is doing is they believe that when 
Well, they know when you activate both sides of your body, you're activating both sides of your brain. And so the, some of the research has shown, and this is Robert Stickgold, I believe his name is, his research has shown that they believe that it's activating the part of the brain where we process things like in REM sleep. And so by doing the bilateral stimulation and the dual attention focusing on the memory, it's doing that same similar type of processing that we do in REM sleep, even though you're fully awake in the office, you're not sleeping, you're just sitting there, but that, that's the part of the brain that activates. So you're, you're, you're actually, as you're experiencing these thoughts and feelings that are coming up from the past or this event or whatever it, whatever it is that has this intensity, you're at the same time having these physical, either through touch or visual or hearing, you're having these senses go back and forth. Correct. That's exactly So you're experiencing it, it at the same time. And that allows you to, I like the analogy of kind of melting that ice cube. Yeah, and that and that just sort of kind of shows how it comes off in layers slowly, just melts through, and then you have access to the rest of your brain. Because what's happening when we're activated, and again, they know this through brain scans, that in that moment of trauma, when you're activated, your prefrontal cortex, your rational brain is offline, right? When you're someone's really activated and angry. And so we can't even access the parts of the brain that are helping to moderate our behavior. And so as we kind of keep everything connected up, our emotional brain and, the, and our thinking rational brain, then we act how we want to. Because how often have people, have you heard people say, gosh, I don't know what came over me. I, I acted as if I were like six or something, like a little kid. Or and it's like, yeah, because in that moment, you don't have access to your rational brain. Right, right. Yeah, your amygdala is taken over and you're yeah. off to the races, so to speak. <laughs> exactly, off to the races. Right. So, so the bilateral stimulation, it's just activating both sides of the brain. That's all. Unfortunately, there's no magic in it. Yes, yeah. there were. Um, <laughs> it'd be helpful. But, um, and then again, with the dual attention process, while you're act- holding the memory in the event, that's when that's when the uh, reprocessing happens. And so this is this sounds like it's very planned, very structured, done in a way that kind of keeps the client at a level that they're not too overwhelmed, but kind of overwhelmed just enough, if that makes sense, to be able to to kind of yeah reintegrate these uh, these memories. Yes, I would say you're always thinking in the eight phases of EMDR. So, like I said, it might seem like we're just doing some talk therapy, but Really, I'm thinking in the AIP model. So I was just blanking on what AIP stands for. <laughs> I know this up one side and down the other. Adaptive information processing model. We're always thinking in the adaptive information processing model. And so even though, like I said, it just might seem like um, just a normal talk therapy, but we're it, so, but it's fluid in that it's very structured, but it's also very client-centered and it's not rigid. So the way I describe it and the way I have to talk about it, it does sound rigid, but when I'm in session, it's just a flow. We might go in and out of phases depending on, again, depending on where my client is in their window of tolerance, you know, keeping a foot on the gas and a foot on the brake. And so it doesn't feel so rigid and structured when you're actually doing the work. It just sounds that way when you're describing it. 
Right, right. Yeah, and it gives you that structure. But yeah, no, that makes total sense because you got to kind of follow follow the clients and, and kind of where they're going. I mean, this just sounds really, really hopeful for anybody out there who has these traumas in their past and, and can't uh, feel stuck. Yeah, absolutely. I've, like I said earlier, I had this before and after in my practice, and it's because I could just, people were making movement so much more quickly and they had come and they'd done therapy. In fact, I'm always happy when someone comes into my office and they've done therapy before because I know we're going to be able to move that much more quickly right? because they have that great basis. Right, already. They're already kind of set up to do this uh, kind of deeper work, this this, uh, somatic work. Right, yeah. So we can just jump in and, and start processing, right? And again, I'm glad you said the somatic work because it really is. It's it's emotions, it's body work, it's noticing um, so much of trauma, as we know, is held in the body. So we're always paying attention to our bodies, always noticing. I've had people like their half their body will freeze up or something, or they'll have suddenly have a headache or something. It's just where the trauma is stored. And then we can clear that out too. So it's not just people come in and say, look, I don't have any memories but I'm feeling this in my body and we say, good, let's go with that because we start wherever you are. Yeah. And, and I really think like therapy is kind of catching up to understanding how, the role of the body exactly. in all of this. And I mean, I think we started with Freud and all the cognitions and, and we're really now beginning to realize how, how much the bot, just the, the body plays into all of this, this stuff that we struggle with through our lives. So. Well, Kay, I want to thank you so much for coming on to The Addicted Mind and, and, and sharing your wisdom and knowledge. What If someone's out there, they're listening to this podcast, and maybe they're struggling with trauma, what would you want to tell them? Wow, that you don't have to live that way. Really, there is hope for you. Even if you've been struggling for a very, very long time, you can find a good EMDR therapist that can help you move through and so that you can just uh, not live with the pain. Right. Go get go get help. There 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 are a lot of new things out there. Absolutely. That that can help you. And and EMDR is 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 one of them. And and uh, yeah, I would highly recommend it too. And I've seen a lot of success with it. So it's really awesome. So if anybody wants to get a hold of you or ask you more questions, how can they do that? Yeah. So you can reach me through my website. It's just my name, ksimith.com, www.ksimith.com. And I will be happy to um, either, you know, if you're not in my own area, I'm happy to direct you toward a good EMDR therapist in your area, wherever that may be. Awesome. And we were talking earlier that you also have a group for therapists who are practicing EMDR. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And Yes, thanks. We have a group, uh, another consultant I started about three years ago. It's called EMDR Connect. And you can find us at www.emdrconnect.com. And we offer support and networking for EMDR therapists in the greater Los Angeles area. And we meet every other month in Pasadena. We have an active email listserv where we have a lot of conversations about all things related to EMDR. And it's been a great group. So uh, join us if you want to get that kind of support. That's that's awesome, Kay, and I, and I love to hear all the work that you're doing and all the, all the people that you're helping. That's that's wonderful. So oh, it's really good to see that. So once again, thanks so much for for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. 
All right, everybody. And once again, thanks for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. I will have everything in the show notes, and that's going to be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 30. See everybody then. Take care. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode. Once again, the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 30. You can get all of Kay's information there and I'll have all the links there as well. Once again, thanks for listening and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and I will see you next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.